Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Booze, Booms and Busts. My name is Boaya Shoshan and I'm joined as ever by Sam Volkering for a podcast where we shall discuss market events while at the same time having a few beers. Sam, how are you getting on this week? Uh, look, it's a, I mean, it's a long weekend, right? So you can't complain about that. I mean, I, to be fair, this week I've, I've written a few things where I have complained that <laughs> a long weekend is bullshit because... Uh, the markets are closed, currency exchanges are closed, banks are closed. I mean, they they call them bank holidays here in the UK, which says a lot about the bullshit nature of public holidays and banks being closed and the, the whole financial system being closed, which I think is just utter rubbish. Um, but nonetheless, it means four days of not having to work, although we did cram in effectively two weeks worth of work into four days this week. So um, quite happy to have a couple of uh, brewskis and, and just something a little special as well that we, we decided just before we came on to, obviously, to, to celebrate the 40th episode. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll reveal that, I guess, shortly. Yeah, it is good to uh, to get to a nice round number like 40. 50, of course, will be an even even bigger cause to celebrate. But, you know, the 40th episode of BBB is, uh, yeah, cause for celebration. And uh, we do wish, of course, a very happy Easter to all of our listeners. Uh, it's been, uh, it does seem quite, has it, it's, it's an interesting period, this sort of the end of the first quarter getting into the second quarter. Hmm. It feels almost like, you know, the beginning of the year wasn't that far away. Well, it was just yesterday, really. But then at the same time, that beer fast I did during that Lent period made time slow down a bit. But here I am <laughs> after we finished that. And it still feels like the beginning of the year wasn't, uh, wasn't, that, wasn't that far away. Um, you, do, you do look healthier, I must admit. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. Thank you, Sam. I, uh, I'm not, yeah, I, feel, I don't feel quite myself yet. I don't think so anyway. Um, you know, I actually had a, you know, I, I received an email from a, a concerned reader um, saying that I need to be very careful uh, that I don't develop something called Korsakoff syndrome, uh, which happens sometimes to, uh, to alcoholics and other people who've e exchanged food for uh, booze. Because if I understand correctly, what it what you end up doing is your body stops being able to absorb vitamin B12, which causes your brain to malfunction ultimately and gives you Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's-like symptoms. Uh, and I was reading through some of what that what these symptoms would look like with uh, with you getting go kind into, of. Did you go into WebMD? Oh no, <laughs> I did not. I did not. It was, but it was it was some something sort of close. It's like you know it, somebody with um, alcohol-related uh, brain damage. Uh, would exhibit these kind of symptoms. I was like, ooh, damn, you know, I do, I do sometimes get a, bit, a few, you know, I am quite scatterbrained sometimes. I do find it quite hard to focus for long periods of time. Uh, but I am, I am hopeful at least that uh, I, I don't think, I think I've come out of that unscathed. So uh, long may that continue. But yeah, in terms of uh, what we should uh, start off with this uh, week, uh, you know, I've actually eaten some some Deliveroo before this this podcast. Mm -hmm. I uh, had some nice Coco di Mama pasta. Uh, it would be remiss to not mention the. Uh -huh. uh, how I mean, how would you? What word would you use to describe the Deliveroo IPO, Sam? Uh, oh, underwhelming. That that's I mean that's got to be the word to use. I mean, the 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 excitement, the hype around Deliveroo, the huge valuation they were talking about, like seven to eight billion. They were like, are we gonna, you know, we're gonna let all our customers buy a thousand dollars worth or a thousand pounds worth of shares. 
Um, we're going to, you know, give bonuses to our best riders. Um, you know, all the, um, to be fair, all the things you'd actually want a company to do. I mean, if, you, if you're a massive company and you're about to go public, you would give your customers an option to buy the stock. Um, the only problem is, is that then it tanked like 30% on the open. I think, I think by the end of the week, it actually probably wasn't too bad, but <sighs> underwhelming, very underwhelming. Considering, mean, obviously... the, considering the froth in the market for a lot of these kinds of companies. Um, yeah. yeah, underwhelming. And you, you, you made an interesting point, uh, actually, after I think I sent you the link, uh, the day it, it, it IPO'd and listed, um, which I think was a very valid point about, you know, have we reached peak uh, COVID stocks? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does seem to me uh, the, deli- the failure, well, it's not the failure, obviously, of the IPO, but yeah. the... Uh, I mean, I'd say underwhelming is an understatement. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the Deliveroo um, opening day, I think, speaks a lot about how overcooked uh, the, 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 the lockdown trade has become and the fact yeah. that this is sort of, we've got exhaustion when it comes to those kind of names. So any, any business that remotely had some kind of an advantage during lockdown that, ha- that was publicly traded just got blown up to crazy, um, you know, cr- incredibly high valuations in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. And Deliveroo, had it been publicly traded beforehand, I'm sure would have had, you know, ended up with a crazy valuation. Ultimately, they've just come to market late. And, you know, once once all of the the juices you know the juices already been consumed right the uh the the speculative fervor that would have really helped it um you know isn't there anymore or doesn't appear to be there yet but you know maybe maybe if they do another lockdown then we'll uh maybe maybe then delivery will get to get to you know some other ridiculous uh multi 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 billion dollar valuation um but you know at the same time you know that delivery it's a loss making company i mean they they burn what two hundred million pounds uh, last year? Uh, they're not. They're not. You know. They're not getting that. They're not earning stuff. They're not an actual profit-making, or maybe not even a profit-seeking enterprise. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're just incredibly good at getting investors to part with their money based on the promise that they're going to take over the world, which is you know a tale for many of the big companies that uh, have been hyped up so much over the past decade. The the question is whether or not this is this is a dynamic that is going to change. I, and I, I think I, I want to think it will change, but I am biased there because it, it is something that I don't like, as it were. You know, but you know, here I am eating Deliveroo, so you know, I must not dislike it that much. But um, you know, it, it's whether or not that changes. I think is uh, is a, is going is a very big question to some degree. Yeah. You know, one one other thing. Well, actually, Karen, right, you know, you finish. You finish off. Well, one thing I did think was uh, I found kind of amusing was the response to the the uh, abysmal uh, performance of the share on, on its opening day. You saw there was a you know, there was someone in the FT, uh, or someone was quoted in the FT anonymously saying that this is the worst IPO in London's history, which I think was oh, that's a bit of maybe a stretch. A, I think yeah, I think it's a bit of a stretch. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, also you know, seeing what Rishi Sunak said when he was asked about uh, what he thought of the, the, you know, this very, very bad opening day for the share. Um, because obviously Sunak would have been, you know, praying for this thing to, to blow up and explode. And, you know, and he's hyped, he hyped up the IPO. This, this is a, Brit, a great British success story. 
And uh, yeah, then he's asked about it on TV and he says, gosh, no, share prices go up, share prices go down. Uh, you know, references Facebook because uh, it, it, to begin with, had a very uh, had a very poor, uh, poor, poor opening, but or it had a you know poor opening sort of period when it first started trading. Uh, but you know, Sunak must have been you know absolutely very crestfallen. I think that uh, Deliveroo did not uh, deliver on its IPO, as it were. Um, and at the same time, it's also interesting to see Goldman, who helped <laughs> one of the main advisors on, uh, on, on this IPO, I think with JP Morgan as well, you yeah. know, blaming short sellers <laughs> for oh, this. Like, uh, like they care. Well, well, like they weren't shorting the, shorting the stock on the other side of the business, exactly. you know, on the other side of the Chinese wall. Were, they, were their guys not, you know, were, were the guys on the trading floor, the prop traders, were they not shorting such a heavily overvalued name? I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know that, you know, so please don't sue me, Goldman, but uh, I wouldn't have been surprised if, if that were the case. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> the thing is with these, these companies, and we've, we've, I think we've talked about this before, like Deliveroo and, um, you know, Zoom even, uh, a lot of these companies, and the, 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 they go, their sort of model is, is, is back to front in terms of their primary focus is they just do not care about making money. All they care about is getting a shit ton of people onto their platform. Then after they've done that, then they sort of, sort of go, right, if we want to survive and not lose, uh, you know, the company, uh, we need to figure out how to monetize these people properly. And then all of a sudden they start to try and monetize people in a better way usually through the with companies like a Deliveroo. I mean, how are you going to monetize your users' fees? And you're either going to rinse, your, uh, rinse the people that are listing, so the small businesses and restaurants and merchants that are listed uh, on Deliveroo. You're going to rinse your riders, your, the people that deliver it, or you're going to rinse your customers. Either way, you've got to rinse somebody after the fact. And that just, yeah. that just creates a really poor user experience it creates a lot of uh, angst uh, against the company and then the thing is, is it's so low barriers to entry in this space that a lot of newcomers just step in and kind of do the same thing but take yep. away all their users and so the valuations on on these delivery companies are tenuous at best so it's not a great surprise i mean look i think it's still you know it's still we're talking it's still a multi-billion pound company here so it's still a big company and i think people get so focused on on these big names because delivery is one of those big kind of names you know multi-billion dollar listing uh you know a lot of attention given but i also was reading uh just yesterday actually that um the london stock exchange has had one of its best quarters of listings in like almost two decades. So there's a, a lot of companies have listed on the London Stock Exchange this year, like loads. Deliverer is just one of them. Uh, and plenty of the others have done very well. Uh, it's just that they don't get talked about because they're not Deliveroo. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of this weird um, sort of pool of, 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 of mainstream coverage that picks up on a very small part of a much bigger story. Uh, and I actually think that, and, and we'll, we'll probably get onto this a little bit later in the, in the, um, 
uh, bull bear section, um, the boom or bust section, I should say, um, that, that I think I think it's I think Deliveroo's story is really taking away uh, from a very much bigger, much more exciting story about the the London market. Yeah, that's a yeah. It is interesting you talking about the success of the London Stock Exchange with its listings this year. Because if you were to read the press, you'd probably only come away thinking that for some reason, you know, the Amsterdam Stock Exchange uh, is is stealing all of the business. And mm. that this is a massive consequence of Brexit, that, uh, you know, the Dutch are getting all of these new listings while London is being shirked. And this is uh, this is just yet another failing of Brexit, et cetera, et cetera, which I, you know, I find laughable uh, for so many reasons. I mean, just the fact that, well, why, maybe if you consider the kind of companies that uh, London normally welcomes for its listings, the kind of companies that London normally attracts for its listings, aren't the kind of companies uh, that do very well during lockdown. So it's not really much of a surprise that maybe, uh, you know, exchanges that are more popular by, you know, say the tech crowd or, um, you know, just other in industries or, uh, or sectors that are, have actually been able to do something during lockdown, uh, you know, exchanges that welcome that have done pretty well. You know, London is, uh, you know, the commodity capital. It's where the likes of Glencore yeah. uh, and, um, you know, these yeah, large they, gold, you know, Barrick and all that, you yeah. know, they've all got their, their headquarters here. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, in a lockdown world, a commodity, you know, if you're, if you're massively into commodities or oil or things like that, you know, there, there wasn't a huge amount of fervor uh, behind that, just in terms of the amount of, of demand there was for any of these commodities. So it's no surprise to me that London was, uh, you know, would have had a hard time where that, where that is concerned. I mean, Deliveroo is a massive outlier for it, to my eyes, for London, because it's, a, it's thought of, at least, as a tech company. Mm. And... Uh, you normally find those going to that going to America, and that's one of the reasons why Rishi Sunak was so keen to try and get a Deliveroo IPO here, and you know to try and why he wants to get more SPACs or the 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 SPAC phenomenon to British shores. I, I, I'd be curious, actually, Sam. Do you think it's fair to say Deliveroo is a tech company or not? Because I'm kind of on the fence about the whole thing. I uh, no, I don't think so. I, I had this discussion the other day, actually, is that I think we use the term tech or tech company far too loosely. Yeah. Because it's such a broad stroke. Like, you, you could argue that Trustpilot, which is also a recent listing on the London Stock Exchange, is also a tech company. I mean, it's really no different to Deliveroo. It's just an application. Uh, the difference being that people go onto Trustpilot's site and leave reviews, as opposed to people going to Deliveroo's site and ordering food. Um, so, no, I don't think they're tech companies because inherently they've just created an application while that is technology-based. Uh, it's it's not exactly breaking new ground, so no, I, I I don't think it would. I would I would call Deliveroo a food and beverage company, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, for it is. Yeah, I, I agree that the word the term tech, the the use of the word tech is used far too loosely, uh, where I guess the point where pretty much every company like WeWork, for example, is probably the easiest. You know, lowest yeah. fruit to pick out there with their branding as a tech company, where it's yeah. almost like if a company has a website, it's a tech company. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, yeah, but Sam, uh, actually, we should we should say what what beers we're drinking first off. Yeah, uh, speaking of leaving reviews. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite. Do you want to start us off? 
Yeah, so uh, I've gone with uh, two Belgian beers today. The first is the... I, get, I, I apologize in advance to anybody that, that knows how to say this properly, but the first is the Duchesse de Bourgogne. Or Bourgogne? 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 <laughs> the Duchess de Bourgogne. Let's call it that. That's, that's horrible. From the brewery Verhagle uh, Viste. God, the Flemish Very art exotic. of brewing. Um, yeah, it's Belgium. It's uh, now, apart from the horrible pronunciation, it's this uh, sort of dark, ruby, uh, really effervescent style beer, very Belgian sort of rouge, um, ruby style beer. So it's quite sweet, um, but really delicious <laughs> it's uh six percent six point two percent sorry um which you know the belgians don't piss around when it comes to the alcohol content with their beers no. um but it's a, it's a very it is a very nice beer to drink so far um and i am it's only a tiny little bottle only a uh 0.25 or 250 mil bottle so it's um basically a shot uh but lovely absolutely lovely i, I kind of wish it was a bigger bottle now <laughs> yeah it's always a good sign when you wish the bottles were bigger i think uh, i think i've had that that beer a few times i i'm similarly uh you know terrible at the pronunciation i'd maybe say duchess de bourgogne um but yeah, yeah, yeah and it's, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> i think the uh yeah i think it is a it is a good brew and uh, it's relatively accessible as well i think if you um a lot of uh, a lot of the places that sell belgian beer should be able to, to to give you some of that um the one i'm on this week is one i believe you had a while back sam which i didn't have at the time which was uh moondog craft breweries um sir plum mccartney does that ring uh, yes yeah yes 4.5 percent sour it's a plum mm. sour ale uh it is it is quite it is quite nice uh, going down um i think though it's not sour enough for me so uh, though it is made in Australia, um, <laughs> it, yeah, it's just not—it's not hitting as hard enough as I would like. It's only four point five percent ABV, so yeah, it that, it doesn't quite make your cheeks implode like some sours do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what we want. Yeah, you yeah. want the stuff that's probably going to dissolve everything that's in your stomach as soon as it gets down there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Sam, in terms of um, if, we, if we're Go on to our bullish bearish segment. I think this would be uh, this would be a good little uh, segue into it. In terms of, uh, shall we start with? Uh, let's see. Shall we start with the bullish segment this week? Yeah. Would like to? Uh, have you thought of something that you're bullish on that you've seen in the news? Yeah. Well, it, it actually sort of follows on from from the Deliveroo thing. So I actually see the Deliveroo IPO as a really bullish sign for the London. Uh, or the, the the British the UK stock market, um, because it's it's kind of a it's kind of a catch twenty two. Okay, it didn't it didn't like burst through the gates and do like a hundred percent on the first day. But what kind of fucking world is this when if a stock doesn't do a hundred percent on its IPO in the first day, it's seen as a failure. Whether or not Deliveroo is a failure or a success, I don't really care. Um, the point is, is that they listed 
on the London Stock Exchange. It's still a very huge capital market. And as I said, there has been so many other listings uh, this year on the London market that have basically just been ignored. Like uh, Doc Martens listed, Moonpig, Trustpilot, uh, like th at least three uh, medicinal cannabis stocks that I know of. Uh, what else was there? There's been, you know, in the last 12 months, then there's been, you know, esports companies. There's been a whole lot of companies that have been listing and will always continue to list on the London Stock Exchange uh, that will, that, I, that, that are great companies. I think what, what people tend to get caught up in is they see something big like Deliveroo. And it's, I don't know, maybe it's as, as somewhat of an outsider to the, to the market here in terms of, you know, obviously wasn't born in the UK. And I've lived here now for seven and a half years. So I still kind of see myself as a bit of an outsider that I can sort of take a step back and have a bit of a non-biased perspective of the market here. I get the feeling that people look that, that, that sort of a domestic here to the, to the British market that have known it their whole lives kind of turn their nose up at it. <laughs> which and maybe that's just the you know observation only I'm observing, but it feels like that the, the everyone gets so caught up in the US market because it is so accessible from the UK here uh, that they very much ignore the domestic market. And that's is partly because traditionally it's been full of somewhat boring stocks, your commodities, like you were saying, and oil and gas uh, and banks effectively. But I think that dynamic is changing um, and it's a subtle change. But the AIM, you know, the, the companies listed on the AIM part of the exchange, there's a lot of really fascinating things going on there. A lot of new companies coming to it, a lot of companies that are there that are doing great things. Uh, and I'm actually really bullish on, on, the, on London listed stocks. I think it's going to be over the next five years, probably the best market uh, to be to be digging out opportunities in, I, I just think it's been really underserved, and I, I I see that they're making a big push to try and get more companies to list on it and see it as a real opportunity to help boost the um, financial chops of of the UK in, in a post Brexit world, which is a bit of a bit silly. It doesn't really need it, but I just think that uh, I think we're going to see more. Not, not maybe not necessarily huge listings, but I think we'll see a number of smaller, more frequent listings. Um, and maybe the big companies do go to the US and try and haul themselves out to the US market. But there's going to be a shit ton more uh, smaller companies that are somewhat under the radar that are going to be hitting the UK market, the London Stock Exchange, that I think is going to be a very good hunting ground for investors over the next few years. Yeah. I, it does seem to be a great opportunity that uh, the LSE and the AIM uh, are not getting the recognition that they deserve. And there's, a, of course, we go, there are a few reasons for that. You know, there's way more, I guess, newspapers to be sold on. It's a really bad, bad Brexit story, et cetera, et cetera. So it's how people don't want to celebrate uh, these kind of uh, advances. Uh, but yeah, it does seem like a big opportunity. Nobody wants, uh, I remember seeing, I, you know, I've not seen the most recent flows, but looking at uh, the amount of uh, investment flows coming from uh, London-based ETFs uh, relative to all the other uh, exchanges out there in the world and seeing that, the, you know, London was not attracting 
uh, capital, there was still capital leaving it. That was about midway through last year, uh, which just strikes me as a massive opportunity because ultimately Britain's not going to hell in the handbasket, or at least yeah. <laughs> the city of London certainly isn't. Uh, while Britain maybe, <laughs> but uh, you know, it does seem like there's a there's, that's going to lead to undervaluation, and those undervaluations are are a great buying opportunity, opportunities for uh, people who are shrewd and uh, you know do their due diligence and you know find uh, companies that are going to go and uh, and change the world to a to a greater or a lesser extent. I think this week for my bullet, what I'm bullish on this week, I'm, it's kind of a pessimistic thing, actually, really. <laughs> I'm bullish on recency bias, which, uh, you know, is just the assumption that things uh, that, you know, have, uh, you know, things that have occurred recently, people are going to expect them to continue. And, uh, and people will forget what happened a long time ago. And they'll just assume that what happened recently will carry on happening. Uh, you know, obviously, this is one of the main flaws of sort of human hate, human nature, to a large degree. Uh, but it's something that I think is, yeah, I think we're, it really is here to stay and it's, gonna, and it's going to continue uh, to uh, exacerbate. Now, I think it's actually going to continue to uh, get, have an even stronger hold on people in the way that smartphones reduce all of our attention spans. So people are even more, more likely, because their attention span is shorter, they're even more likely to, assert, you know, to assume that what just happened is going to continue to happen. And what made this, uh, the reason why I, I, recency bias is what I'd, I'd raised this week is just from speaking to people in Aberdeen <laughs> who are uh, so bearish on oil, which, uh, so, you know, Aberdeen's an oil town really? and it's had some great times when oil prices are high. And I'm one of the, I'm one of the oh, pretty much the only person I know in Aberdeen <laughs> who is thinking oil prices are going to get really high again. Everybody else it's like you actually encounter resistance trying to tell people that, you know, actually Aberdeen's got a bright future. Fascinating. Now, people don't want to know, right? They're just so used to uh, Aberdeen being, again, absolutely wrecked after <laughs> uh, the oil crash in, in the early to mid 2000s, uh, 2010, sorry. So after, after the oil, oil peaking well above $100, you know, uh, it was really grim. There were huge amounts of layoffs in Aberdeen. And, uh, you know, the, the taxi rank on a Friday night would just get longer and longer and longer with a smaller and smaller queue. And it's, it's like that now. Uh, yeah, the, all of that happened effectively again last year when oil got completely wrecked. So not only was, you know, the Wu flu causing all of this domestic malaise uh, and angst, but on top of that, oil was getting uh, just completely whacked. So people were getting laid off on top of that. And that made Aberdeen a very, very grim town to be in. But, uh, you know, I'm the, I think we're going to see $100 oil, maybe even this year. I think, you know, that's, that's well within the realms of, of uh, probabilities. Yeah. Uh, and yet, like, nobody wants to know. Like, people don't, uh, you know, people uh, ask me for my views on things uh, and, you know, on things like oil, because oil, the oil price is such a big, uh, it's such a big issue in Aberdeen. You know, when the oil price goes down a lot, you can really see it in that your friends are getting laid off. So when people ask me what I'm thinking about oil, and I say, yeah, I think it's actually, a, yeah, I think oil is going to have a really good year this year. I think uh, all of the, these oil companies and all of their related enterprises that uh, you know make up the economy of Aberdeen, I think they're going to stop hiring again. And yet nobody, you know, people are just assuming that all of the grim days post uh, the shale boom, uh, and then again with the with oil prices getting wrecked last year, people just really 
don't think the opposite can happen. Uh, not not from people I know in Aberdeen anyway. So maybe I, maybe I've just got some very depressed friends. But uh, I I do. It does seem like I'm the only oil bull in an oil town, which which feels very strange to me. But yeah, so I, I would say recency bias, and I think this is going to create a big a big opportunity because you know just as but just when things start getting good again, well then you know people are going to be like, oh well, you know they'll they'll get used to it, and then there'll be all this more this positive momentum taking place. Uh, and then, you know, uh, after a while, people will just think that oil prices are going to be really high for a very long period of time. And of course, this creates the opportunities and sows the seeds for, uh, you know, oil to go down again, etc. But I am an oil bull, but I feel like I'm the only oil bull in an oil town. So recency bias is what I, I'm bullish on. What about you on the bearish side, Sam? What are you bearish on the moment? Yeah, so I'm bearish on home fitness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and the related industries around home fitness. You not got a Peloton in there, Sam? There's there's a little bit of Peloton uh, in there. Absolutely, there's a lot of Peloton in there. Um, I'm not I'm not bearish on the technologies. I'm bearish on the on people's willingness to use them. <laughs> people's willingness to use them when they're not literally under house arrest. Right. So. I I will I will fess up. I was a victim to the home fitness uh, phenom that rolled through in the last year, and I was like, well, if I can't go to the gym, if I can't go to the driving range, if I can't go play golf, if I can't do shit, I'm gonna get an exercise bike and I'm gonna do it at home. And I was like, but you know what? I don't want to just get a normal exercise bike. I want to get something good that I'm gonna use that's interesting rather than just like turning a knob to plus or minus so i went and got one of those uh smart bikes i got a stages smart bike which uh connected to uh connected to uh what's what's that so zwift connected to zwift that's it so you like ride around in this virtual world in in, in zwift and you know riding with other people i could ride with my brother in australia and all that sort of stuff uh and then I got to the point where I was like, you know what, for the price I paid for this, I'm not using it. And so I sold it. I had it for about two months. <laughs> now I am, I am also what you would probably consider to be somewhat lazy, but so I'm not, it's not just my experience that, that gives me this view. Uh, it is the fact that uh, oh, the interesting thing was I sold it for equally as much as I paid for it. So I bought it new. I was lucky to get it new. So when I bought it, it was almost impossible to get any smart bikes. So there's one called the Wahoo kicker bike. Uh, there's the stages smart bike. Uh, there's a couple of others and, and it was, they were as rare as hen's teeth. You just couldn't get one. And I managed to get one somehow. Uh, and then when I went to sell it, the guy that bought it off me paid the price I paid for it new uh, wow. because you couldn't get them anywhere. Um, and, and just side note, I also had a PlayStation 5 on order, which I really should have bought because I could have sold it for more. But anyway, so it was interesting that, that you, you know, these, these things. But so what I'm seeing now is having a look on those, all of these smart bikes, these Peloton bikes, all these sorts of things, they're not as rare on the shopping sites and the, anymore. They're, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of them in stock and there's plenty of them still popping up online and i've i've intentionally kept an eye on it for this very reason to see to see the volumes that are appearing in stock or or more specifically the volumes that aren't being sold from stock uh, and also the ones that are getting put online as people realize that they don't want to don't enjoy 
or won't be using them anymore. And I think that that's only going to accelerate as people actually can start to go back to the gym. Uh, they can start to go outside. They can start to go back to the pub uh, when instead of doing an hour on the bike on a Friday, they go to the pub and socialize with their friends because that is a much more fun thing to do. Um, and I think that the companies that are involved in these home fitness um, apparatus, uh, you know, while they serve a very good purpose and that they will probably do okay, uh, they've been blown up to these crazy values, uh, a lot of hype. And I think that they are going to suffer a very long protracted bear run down from here on in. It'll be, it'll be very interesting to see what the world looks like then in that kind of environment. So if we do get a big drain of the home fitness companies, Peloton, et cetera, you know, is that because is that does that also mean that people are becoming less healthy or in this environment are people just going to the gym? Yeah, so I'd probably be I probably should have chucked this into the bullish section, but I'd be bullish on gyms from here. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean, I'm one yeah. of the things I really missed during lockdown was just the ability to go to a gym. Um, and I'm, I now, still even I, I, though even though obviously people don't well, not everyone enjoys going to a gym, but it, it was a um, you know, a process. It was an activity that uh, yeah. you know I got a lot out of. So there, uh, there are some companies. There are some new companies out there that are doing home gym stuff. That's a bit more like weight training. So Tonal is a really interesting company that's got this really. Uh, it's it's you know the cable machines that you can do sort of dynamic weight training. Yeah, on. yeah. They've got one of those where you basically fix it to the wall and can do a whole bunch of weight training through it. Again, I you know it's 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 really good technology. Don't get me wrong, but I think that the more likelihood is that they will sell more to gyms than they're going to sell to the home fitness market. Yeah, um, which will be you know will, will mean there'll be a business there, but it won't be as built boomed up and built up and hyped up as the market's already sort of indicating that they will be. Yeah, I think. I, I get the impression that once this is over, people are just going to be dying to get out of the house. They won't want to be doing push-ups and or using a TRX machine, you know, one of those cable things inside yeah. the house. You know, they're yeah. going to do that. I think they're going to want to do it, go to a gym and uh, that kind of thing. I, well, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but uh, you know, lockdown, just being stuck inside your home all of the time, I think is really, you know, I think cabin fever is very much real, and uh, it's something that people are going to want to escape once this is over. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think, I mean, I mean, I look at Peloton's chart now and so the company's been listed since sort of late 2019. So a year and a half, it's kind of been on the market. And I think at one stage it was like 10 X from its initial listing that came to market somewhere around the sort of $25 mark sort of by earlier this year, it was up around 170. So not quite 10 X, but still a massive boom. And it's already wiped a fair bit of that off. Just, I think from uh, sort of a lot of, a lot of those sort of big companies that have had these, like it's still Peloton still got a $33 billion valuation or market cap on it at the moment, which is wild. I th think that's wild. Just, astronomically wild and i'd be yeah. very bearish on on it and and 
basically any company like it. <laughs> you want to give a rating for your first beer? Because I'm on my second one now. So. Uh, yeah, so I've just started pouring out my second one, which unfortunately half of it uh, seems to have just frothed up into head. But um, the first one, so the Duchess de Bourgogne, Bourgogne, Bourgogne. You should just call it Duchess Burger or something. You know, Duchess de Burger. Uh, it's a really, Burger I'm King, really... It's Burger Duchess. <laughs> Burger the Duchess. Uh, I liked that. I liked that a lot. I think uh, towards the end, I think it's a bit too, a bit too rouge for me. Uh, and it's a little bit too sweet. Uh, and if it had been a, you know, half liter bottle i probably would have been a bit like sort of sickly by the end of it but i enjoyed the small bottle maybe good things come in small packages and that's why it's in a small bottle um but i think i'll just give this i think it just gives this a b it was very enjoyable and I, I think do you know what in if it was like 25 degrees outside uh and it was quite you know really chilled i think i'd enjoy it a little bit more so it might like get a b plus but for now i think i'll just give it a b hmm yeah, I uh, I think I would give the uh, Plum McCartney. Uh, I think I'd give it. Uh, I think I'm being generous. I'll give it an A. I'll, I'll just give it a single A. Uh, yeah, it's it's nice, but it's not. It's not that great. Nothing right home, but probably wouldn't go and buy a second one. Uh, the second one I'm on now is um, what you had a while back. What's in the bag? Double dry hopped pale ale by Full Circle Brew Company. Uh, it is five point two percent. And uh, yeah, I'm having a, having a few sips. It's got a crazy label, some uh, very psychedelic fella who has got a maple leaf on his head. Maybe he's a Canadian or something. Is it a Canadian brewing company, perhaps? Nope, I don't believe it is. Um, yeah, I think this is... Yes, yeah, so this is from Newcastle. So I'm not sure why this fella's got a, uh, a maple leaf on his head. Uh, but, you know, he's uh, very psychedelic, got all everything's in multicolored, big beard and everything. It's not too bad. Not too bad. Um, I think, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, this is, this is all right. What's uh, sorry, Sam, what's your, what's the second one you're on now? Uh, yeah. So the second one I've got is the, and here we go again with the great pronunciation for Belgian beer. Uh, oh, yeah. Bruxé Zot. <laughs> ah, yes. Is it, is it not, is it, is it not a like D E or something in the middle of it? It's like Bruges des Zot. I don't, I can't see the D. Or is it just Bruges des Zot, right? Bruges, Bruges Zot. Um, there may be something else on here. I'm not sure, but I can't see it anyway, but this is a six percenter in a slightly larger bottle, a 33 CL bottle. So, you know, it's come from the mainland. Um, and it is from the, I'm trying to find the brewery. Ah, the Brauerei Brau Brauerei de Halvman in Waldplain in Bruges. I, I now, you know what? Interesting story. Uh, very much fond of Bruges uh, for a number of reasons, mainly because that's where I proposed to my wife. Oh, how romantic! Yeah, we went there on a little uh, trip. Well, at least she thought it was a trip. I had ulterior <laughs> motives. And uh, by one of the little, um, you know, it's just like, you know, the, little, the sort of canals flowing through it and stuff. I think we'd, um, it, was, it was a wild weekend because for some reason, uh, we'd only sort of recently moved to the UK. 
Um, and one of my payment cards that was with the Yorkshire Bank. So I had, when I first came to the UK, I had to get an account with the Yorkshire Bank because they had a relationship with an Australian bank, which meant- Is that the, the Building only, Society? Uh, I don't know. <sighs> it was right. partly owned by the National Australia Bank in Australia. Obviously. Right, NAB, um, right. And so it was literally the only bank in the UK I could o- open an account with from Australia. Like Damn. every other bank over here, uh, you have to have, you have to provide um, some sort of proof of living here before they'll even open you an account. Yes, right. So if you're trying to move from one country or from Australia to the UK, you can't open a bank account here, but you can't then get a rental without a bank account here. So you can't provide the information, but you also can't live anywhere because you can't get anything with the bank. It's, it's another example of how fucked up the financial system is, the, the, the supposed global financial system, which does not allow people to migrate from one country to the other with any ease at all. Um, apparently, the Yorkshire Bank doesn't even have a relationship with NAB anymore, so it's even harder. Um, it's just another example of how how difficult the financial system is. But anyway, Bruges, I love because yeah, that's where my wife says yes, she would agree to the to the uh, future nuptials, um, which has resulted in now two children and uh, a lifetime of future headaches from said children. Um, uh, <laughs> but Bruges, long may it continue. <laughs> long may it continue. Um, no, so this is a good bit. Definitely got a much more Belgian, uh, traditional Belgian uh, style to it um definitely got that flavor that smell that i like very much so looking forward to this one taking me back to bruges yeah so can you uh, can you highlight what sorry what the connection was there because i think i lost a, i lost a step on the story what was the connection with between uh, yorkshire bank and the difficulty getting a bank account and bruges itself yeah so sorry so we were in bruges and yeah. i had a yorkshire bank account and it right. decided that it wasn't going to work so I right. couldn't I couldn't make any payments with my Yorkshire bank bank card, and I also couldn't withdraw any money from the ATMs. So all I had for this supposed great weekend with my future wife, where I was going to propose to her and it was going to be all super romantic, <laughs> uh, was literally like a hundred euros that I'd had that I'd had in cash uh, to get me through the weekend, which meant no fancy dinners. It meant uh, yeah, it meant uh, pretzels by by the water, uh, living frugally, uh, popping off to the uh, local the the corner shop, uh, whatever the the chain of corner shops was, I can't remember, um, to uh, to to stock up on uh, <laughs> the cheapest food and drink we could find because the fucking bank decided that it wasn't going to let me access any of my money that weekend. And uh, did you propose despite the Spartan surroundings? I did. I did. It's like afterwards, um, Haley said to me, she's like, I remember you were like really stressed out and, <laughs> and, and I couldn't figure out why. And she was like, you know, it was like, oh, well, you know, okay. So the bank card wasn't working. You couldn't get the money. We had a bit of money. And she's like, you were getting, just getting really stressed about it. And I was like, yeah, it's because I wanted the fucking weekend to be perfect. And then all of a sudden the banks just like shafted me. And I wanted to, you know, propose. And she's like, ah, oh, and she's like, ah, oh, now it makes a lot more sense. 
Damn, that's quite a story. I mean, yeah, were you not tempted to like, okay, I'll well, I'll bring her back another time, then I'll propose to her. Like, you know, I'll do it the next weekend or something. Man, I, I would like just would just I, like I prepaid for the hotel, luckily, and mm. um, you know, we obviously um, flew over there. I was like, I didn't want to have to. I wasn't going to repeat that again, like yeah. a couple of months later. Um, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And I, I had to, like so not only that. So the ring was my 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 mum's. Uh, which it was my mum's engagement ring uh and i'd got it from my dad when i was last in australia which was which had been like six months earlier taking it back with me from australia on my person because i didn't want to lose it if, if it was in a bag and that bag got lost i would like shot myself so i literally carried this ring all the way back from australia had it at home for six months then had to keep it on my person as we flew to bruges and basically tried to hide it from her the whole way. And so I was like, I'm not going through that stress again because it's such a sentimental ring that I was like, I just can't deal with the stress of having to transport this across um, foreign borders again. So I was like, it's, it's now or never. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Damn, I don't think I can... I can uh, I've not got a, a similar story. I remain unmarried, <laughs> to, uh, which, I, which I could bring to the table. Uh, for my bearish uh, segment... This week, um, I think, I think for this this time around, uh, I am bearish on, or at least uh, it's hard to hard to describe. It's probably a nice, neat, compact way of saying it. it. It's like I am, I'm bearish almost on. It's not I'm bearish on hubris. I'm just <laughs> bearish on people who are hubristic, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, and I, so the, the person in question here is uh, Madame Lagarde or uh, uh, Madame Money Printer, as, well, as I like to say. You're now. bearish on the financial system. I mean, let's, let's be honest, because well, that's, that's where all the hubris lives. It's, it's specific in this case to the Eurozone. Um, with Lagarde's comments earlier this week, where she's on Bloomberg TV and she's just, uh, it's just. You know, market that she literally says markets can test us as much as we want, yeah. as they want. We've got the mandate. We've got we've got a mandate. We've got exceptional tools to deal with any exceptional problems. Uh, you know, and there's this bit where she is uh, asked about if there would be any interest rate rises, which is a bit of a joke. I mean, yeah. anybody asking if they're going to raise interest rates is it is somewhat of a joke. So maybe Lagarde laughing isn't the most laughing about that is not is not such a crime but it was just the manner in which where where she answers the question where she's saying yeah i'm not i don't see any i don't see any uh any interest rate rises in the near future but she's laughing as she says it which i think it just speaks to the kind of you know it is it is ridiculous to, to ponder that but for a central banker you know they can actually just get over just publicly what interest rate rises mate uh pull the other one that old chestnut right it's not, I, I, don't, I don't think it bodes well. Uh, and I feel that, that, that this spectacle of going on TV and saying, you know, there's nothing you guys can do about it. Well, we're going to do what we want to do. And there's not a goddamn thing that you can do about it. You know, there's not a goddamn thing the bond market can do about it. There's not anything. Um, and also, we're going to keep just ruining savers in the Eurozone for as long as we goddamn yeah. want. I don't think that that bodes very well for uh, Lagarde's ECB. How 
the consequences will play out, how the bond market might reach out and get her, I don't know. But uh, I, I, I'm bearish on people who exercise that kind of, uh, you know, put that kind of hubris on public display like that. Yeah. It is definitely a sign, I would say, of overconfidence. Um, the um, but, yeah, who, who Augustine's Augustine's what's his face from the uh, the International Bank of Settlements? Oh, Carstens. Carstens. Oh, yeah, yeah he's, he's equally the, as bad. The fattest man in finance. If anybody, if any one of our listeners can find a public financial figure who is fatter than Augustine Carstens. Uh, and pointed out, I will buy them. A, I will buy them a uh, you know their favorite spirit, a bottle of their favorite spirit. He's, uh, he, uh, it's, within, it's, it's within, worrying. To be fair, I'd be worried. Uh, what? Uh, what? Uh, you'd be worried that uh, <laughs> that someone's going to find a fat a bloke. <laughs> well, no, I'd, I'd be I'd, I'd be worried for his for his health. Uh, to be to be fair, that's just, it can't be yeah. that, that can't be healthy. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, he is one. He is one fat guy. Uh, you know, he is he is enormous. Large. He's also large. he's also a fucking idiot because the amount of times that he's come out and he he was talking the other day uh, in an interview and talking about the absolute power and control that they have, and he's he's been talking about central bank backed digital currencies recently, uh, and he's he's basically said it's it's a mechanism for control. Yep. you know his words um so uh, <laughs> the, 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 the the it is it just i am often lost for words because they are so forthright in saying exactly what their intentions are and yet people still for some reason believe them to be trustworthy and it's hard for us to think that people think that the likes of Christine Lagarde or, or Augustine's are, are trustworthy or central banks are, or central bankers are trustworthy because we inherently do not trust them because we know how much they um, just screw the, the financial system and screw savers and screw people trying to get ahead in life financially. Um, but because they're in positions of authority, uh, they are they are issued with an inherent level of trust from the uh, I suppose uninformed, and uh, even though they come out and say like Lagarde, I'm going to laugh, basically laugh at you because we'll do whatever the fuck we want and we don't care what anyone else says, which is again a handful of people making very significant important decisions about a lot of other people um, with no recourse for their actions. So. If it comes out that their decision making uh, is the worst uh, economic decisions that have ever been made in the history of finance, she's not going to care because she's not going to have to answer for it. I believe. I believe. Didn't she even recently? Wasn't she even recently found guilty uh, of certain charges? I believe. Don't yes, quote me on this. Um, it was yes, it so fraud Chris charges or something. Uh, I believe financial malfeasance. Uh, so I, I right. believe they are anyway. It's not. It's not as hard cut as fraud. Uh, but no, Christine Lagarde is a convicted criminal. You know, That's right. it's a it's a yeah. it's a, a great example of just how uh, 
how the EU institutions believe in giving somebody a second chance that they have decided to make her uh, the, the head of the European Central Bank. Uh, and it, I think very much it illustrates incredibly well the, how intense, should we say, the situation is for the Eurozone financial institutions that they would turn to somebody who is not a central banker and indeed is a convicted criminal for financial crime uh, as the person that they need. This, this is the woman for the job uh, to get that, uh, that role as one of the most important people for the entire EU project. Do you know what's uh, interesting? If, if you or I had been convicted of the same thing, we probably would, we would definitely not have the job that we have now. Well, I, I, indeed, Sam, I believe if you or I actually convict, did uh, were guilty of such a crime, we would be in jail. But well, probably uh, that know, too. <laughs> it, with Lagarde, you know, you know, these guys, they we are but jail, humble, lowly serfs, though. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Lagarde is a very stylish woman. I don't think the, you know, the attire that one wears in prison would really suit her image. Are you saying yeah, if I, I wear a fancy scarf, I could avoid prison? Yeah, well, you just need that high-paying government job as and well as the and an electric blue scarf. power suit. Mm, yeah, yeah. Lagarde, uh, yeah, gets off. Uh, you know, got off for free on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, she she's a convicted criminal. She was convicted. The the crime itself, I believe, was for when she was the French finance minister. She rubber stamped. Uh, I think it was a takeover deal. Uh, for, um, for by a large French businessman who was friends with uh, the prime minister who she was, well, the president, sorry, that she was serving under. And uh, I think that would have been Sarkozy. Is that um, what he just got convicted of as well then? Uh, well, I believe it's a di that's a different, <laughs> that's a, that's a different <laughs> that's a, crime. So. That's another story. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's a different story in itself. But yeah, the businessman had, was, uh, you know, great mates, I believe, with Sarkozy. And her rubber stamping the deal without um, with the, to this takeover deal was uh, was done for political purposes because he was mates uh, with with Sarkozy. I, I believe that's the story. Uh, I've done, I, I probably should actually spend some some time actually looking into exactly how that that transpired. But you know, ultimately, uh, a court did find her guilty. Of course, she didn't have to do anything. I don't even know if she had to pay a fine or anything. But uh, you know, well after that, uh, ECB is like, we need a new person for the job. Uh, and it's going to be Lagarde, <laughs> and uh, yeah, now she's uh, now she's Madame Money Printer. Uh, I I would be uh, curious, Sam. Well, with yeah, looking at uh, Carstens, right? Uh, uh, we we call him Augustine. I mean, that, I guess the that's the English version. Maybe the maybe the correct pronunciation would be Agus Agustan. Um, it's a it's a Mexican, uh, it's a Mexican sort of uh, version of the name. Well, Spanish, obviously, but you know, it's uh, he's from Mexico, and he is now the managing. Well, he's the yeah general manager. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to look this up because the exact role he he plays within the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, uh, I wasn't aware of because I'm not even sure the BIS has presidents or governors. But uh, yeah, you know, or Agustin Carstens, the uh, the fattest man in finance. You know, if you can find a fatter man in finance, please. You really want me. someone to find a fatter man. No, I don't, because then I'd need to give him, give him, oh, give him some true. whiskey. But, um, you know, uh, he, is, he is one hell of a fat bastard. Uh, you know, that can't be healthy. Anyway, he is very anti-crypto, of course, and now he's very overt about it. Thankfully, uh, he, the BIS itself actually doesn't actually have any authority. It is it, yeah. all it can do is give advice to other central banks and financial institutions. So it doesn't really 
it, it only exerts influence uh, that, uh, you know, that people are open to, you know, the other fi finance uh, ministers and the like are open to. So, uh, you know, hopefully he won't be able to exert too much of that. But we shall see. We shall see. Uh, Sam, am I correct in thinking that the Coinbase IPO is coming up? Because, you know, if people are thinking the government's going to go really anti-crypto, would be, it would be quite strange for the government to allow Coinbase to list. Yeah, the irony is, is that it's been green, given the green light and it's looking like April the 14th, they're going to, there won't be an IPO. It's going to be a direct listing because they don't need the money. They're just oh, yes. going to go to market. They've already got the money. They've got the money from several rounds of investment dating back to 2000 and 2012, I think, when they first started. I first came across Coinbase in 2013. I, f I first set up, I, I, I set up my first Coinbase account in October 2013. So I've actually been, I've actually had a Coinbase account for seven and a half years. Actually. He's still and waiting for the, air, the Coinbase airdrop of his shares and they still haven't given him any. So yeah, well, to be fair, I'm a little, I'm a little fucking pissed, to be honest with you, because along the way, I ain't never had a chance to put any money into it. I would have, but yeah. never given that chance. What do you do? <laughs> I can't, I can't magic, magic up shares for myself. Uh, and now all of a sudden they're going to list uh, in the US, direct listing. And there's talk that the valuation is going to be $100 billion. I was like, yeah. I, 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 I hate them. I, I mean, I use them. I still have an account and I, I, they're, they're a good um, you know, on-ramp into, into crypto. But I hate them because not only are they a, a company that has been built on the back of crypto, uh, they're doing the most anti-crypto thing you can do, which is going to the fucking traditional financial system and doing a direct <laughs> listing on the stock market for all the everyone, all the bankers and the VCs uh, that did all the fundraising and the rounds, investment and seed rounds beforehand and the A and the B and the C and the D rounds. They're all the ones making a shit ton of fiat money out of this. Uh, and Coinbase just doesn't give a shit. They're just cashing in their chips so in it for the money well but they're the not money. cashing in the chips though if they're if there's just a direct listing they're decided i think that yeah, but that stock that ready. stock's got to come from somewhere to to have um you know volume yeah. to trade yeah people are going to sell out people are gonna yeah yeah though so, yeah i wonder i wonder who it is then that is going to get provide those shares who is it that's going to say hey i've done i've done enough for this company i just want to cash out i want to want to cash out my chips uh, and then go retire or whatever. Or do you think it's just like the VCs and the uh, the early fundraisers, the early private investors yeah. who are going to be um, selling? I would out? think. I, I mean, I'm sure it'll be in the uh, filing detail. But I would have thought that it'd just be a number of the early, uh, you know, early rounds of uh, a portion. I can't imagine anyone's actually going to completely uh, offload out of it. Um, but I would think that they would be putting up a fair bit of the. The, the the volume for um or the the float for for the market yeah i think that that is a that is going to be a huge event that listing event uh yeah i think so too just like the deliveroo ipo is uh was a a, a barometer or a weather vane for the uh, lockdown trade and how well that did but at the least deliveroo fucking gave their customers a chance to buy a stock <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, even though even though they're, they're they're probably not very they're probably not very proud of their decision to do so now, but um, 
you know the, and to be the, fair to be fair i will i will just add at a hundred billion dollars i um I may, I may be bearish on on coinbase's um fiat valuation mm. uh, well, well that's that's quite ironic considering the the norm the standard crypto response is that fiat's getting massively devalued so you need to you need to own the assets that'll protect you from it right Mm, yeah i mean they are definitely i mean they're holding crypto on their balance sheet we know that there's also a very large outflow of continuous outflow of of, of bitcoin in particular from their exchange yes. that, that's not necessarily a um a, an issue for coinbase but it does certainly indicate there's a dwindling supply of of, of uh, bitcoin in particular so you would think that they will start to expand into other areas i think their payment card uh, facility. I think they'll expand and branch out into credit because I think they're f- effectively going to build themselves into a bank. I mean, they're already going to be bigger than uh, many banks that exist in the world. I think that they are the new style of bank, but at a hundred billion, I mean, the question is, 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 do they become a trillion dollar company? Do you, you know, if you're an investor into Coinbase, when it, when it hits the market, do you, do you get in and, and, and what's your upside from here? What's your, what's your upside uh, aim? And, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just, I just wonder if you know that when you know the crypto markets well enough, and you know that centralized exchanges like Coinbase are um, a somewhat of a, a somewhat on borrowed time, then I, I struggle to think that the upside from here anytime soon is is what investors that are probably going to jump onto this when the hype and the FOMO builds. I, I don't know if it's going to be all it's cracked up to be. That's interesting. So, uh, like, I, I, well, to, just to what I was saying earlier, I think the, 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 the listing, even if it's not, they're not raising new money, is, is going to be a key event to watch just in terms of it's a, it's a weather gauge for how much interest there still is, certainly from the legacy financial system in uh, Bitcoin. It's how hot the the Bitcoin trade is. So if that direct listing ends up it declines, you know, it's a, it ends up getting delivered, then uh, you know that's not that's not going to look very good for uh, the institutional adoption of uh, Bitcoin and other digital assets. But Sam, what that's interesting you're saying about um, you think it's on borrowed time. See, I understand the the case to be made that um, decentralized exchanges, DEXs are going to balkanize centralized exchanges. I get that. However, you still need these fiat on-ramps, right? You still need nodes and bridges where people can get physical cash or bank, yeah, well, physical cash, but you know, hard cash, you know, uh, you know actual money in your bank account mm-hmm. as a swap for uh, digital assets in large quantities. Now Coinbase is and Coinbase Pro, and they've got the Coinbase has an institutional product as well. Uh, you know they they provide that, and that's something I don't think is going to go away. You're still going to need one of the because as cool as the likes of Bitilicious and all these uh, peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchanges are, if you've got a lot of uh, a lot of money that you need a shift, or if you've got a lot of Bitcoin that you need to shift for money, you're still going to need these fiat on ramps. You're still yep. going to need the likes of Coinbase. So what, what makes you think they're on borrow time? What is it uh, that, that drives that? Well, the on-ramp side of things is, again, it's, it's actually, it, well, it will be an increasingly lower barrier to entry. So I think that what you know, we're already seeing it with 
So effectively, all the all the major broking platforms. So Robinhood's doing crypto, um, eToro's doing crypto. Uh, you know, PayPal's are all of a sudden just you know, not all of a sudden, but PayPal's now into it. And you've got Square in the US. Uh, I expect them to go global. So you get there's a lot of competition. Gemini, Binance, yeah, a lot of competition for on ramping, and so it. For me, it's just that if you're a centralized exchange and you're on ramping, well, on ramping is going to continue to be more competitive, uh, it, which means that the the cost to on ramp, so the fees involved, are going to drop. So it's going to be razor thin margins. So obviously, Coinbase is a much bigger business than that. They've got a lot of other stuff going on through through the exchange, through their custody, um, through a whole number of other different aspects. So it's not just about people buying crypto and trading crypto. Uh, like I said, they've got the payment card, which, which I have and, and I do use. Um, so there is aspects to the business, but every, a lot of those, there is increasing competition in that space. And I don't, at this point, don't see a huge differential between them and some of their competition. I think that their real advantage, they're not a first mover, I should add. They're just a long mover in terms of they've been around a long time. Kraken is also now starting to really jump into this space and, and, and try and you know really um, validate themselves as well. And I think Kraken's going to be a, a fast riser. And you've got companies like BlockFi that are starting to raise serious uh, VC money. I think they just did a $300 million seed, uh, not seed, um, a funding round. Uh, so all of a sudden these sorts of crypto bank, I say with sort of inverted commas, um, style businesses, a lot of them are now starting to get VC money flowing to them. And I think it's going to be a really competitive space. And that unless you're doing something very different or have some kind of particular avenue, uh, or backing that it's, I just, I, I think a hundred billion is just too much considering all of those factors when you when you bring it into play. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's an interesting analysis, Sam. I uh, when I think of Bitcoin and, and the well the digital assets and these uh, derivatives of them ultimately, you know, uh, it's like imagine if you're buying it's almost like you're buying um, a commodities exchange instead of a commodity, right? With something like something like Coinbase, or you're buying a uh, well, yeah, or imagine, or yeah, like you say, imagine if you're buying a bank rather than the currency, or a yeah. bank rather than the the bonds they're trading, right? I um, I have no idea what the, I yeah, I mean it's it's hard for me to think that far in the future because the thing is that Bitcoin moves so fast and it has these incredible surges and uh, you know crests and troughs and things like that that trying to imagine what long term what an asset like shares in Coinbase would be is something that it, for me is even harder to start. Yeah, well, it is even harder for me than to imagine what the future value of Bitcoin might be. So uh, like I imagine, you know, <laughs> your markets make fools of us all. And, uh, you know, recently I wrote that, um, and this would have been maybe two, maybe two, maybe three weeks ago, uh, saying, uh, you know, Bitcoin is at is on the precipice. You know, it is either one or the other. It's going to go one that way or the other. It's either going to explode. It, it will explode. And the question is whether or not it explodes to the upside or to the downside. Right? Mm. There's no middle ground. Damn it. <laughs> and, you know, what does Bitcoin do? You know, for, you know, one of these incredibly 
uh, volatile assets. You know, so rarely is stable. You know, it just goes <laughs> it just goes sideways for three yeah. weeks, pretty much, right? And it's it's still the higher end of its range, right? But it's uh, you know we're not far from sixty thousand dollars. Hell, it might actually be sixty thousand dollars, but you know it's still no. It it is it did not explode to the upside, and it didn't explode to the downside either. But um, yeah, the the Coinbase thing. I was just if you if you did get that explosion to the upside on on uh, on bitcoin you i can very easily imagine the the shares from that direct listing because again it is direct listing as you say they're not adding new supply of shares so it is kind of fixed that way you know i can imagine the the valuation of that company going to some ridiculous level until bitcoin finishes this cycle and then all the, you know all the all the the hot money drains out of it and then and then and then the coin coinbase would just get wrecked again but well, not wrecked again, but it would get it would get wrecked like all of the other derivatives of Bitcoin during a Bitcoin bear market. Uh, so just like the alts get wrecked during uh, during Bitcoin bear markets, I can imagine like, the Coinbase shares getting wrecked. Um, Sam, how would you how would you rate your second beer? Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's it's very much more a, a traditional Belgian style, um, you know, that more golden amber flavor, smooth. As, as usual, as Belgian beers quite often are. Six um, percent is a good thing. I mean, I've, it's just a it's just your typical Belgian beer. There was as much at all as um, the uh, Duchesse de Burger <laughs> was uh, was uh, very you know very different you know with what it was. At least it had a bit of individual individualism about it uh you know the zot i think you know it's just a bit generic i think's the word i'm looking for uh Forgettable, huh? yeah so i think i'm just gonna give it i mean it was still nice and i do like belgian beers so i'm, I'm gonna give it an a plus oh fair enough i think for as the, much as uh, i love bruges <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah for uh what's in the bag the Full Circle Brew Company, 5.2% DDH Pale Ale. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to give this one an A minus. Just, it's not. Not it's a great not batch great. today. Yeah, yeah, not, not, not ideal. But uh, <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, maybe I'm just not, just not quite in the mood. You know, since that, since that beer fast, I will, I will readily admit, you know, um, my appreciation of beer, you know, did did weigh. Like when you're consuming only beer for everything. <laughs> And you're not even consuming beer because you want to. You're consuming it because it's the only thing you can have. It really does dent your um, your appreciation for it. So I'm still I'm still not quite loving beer as much as I did. That's not to say I've not had some bloody good beers since the end of that because I have. But um, you know my love of beer is not returned just yet. I imagine in the summertime though. You know it shouldn't take me long to to get over it uh, and get back into the swing of things. Now, Sam, uh, we are drawing. We have we have been rambling on for quite a wee while, but it is episode forty, so we probably should uh, probably should celebrate with something. Would you uh, would Would you like to have a little bit of whiskey to close off this uh, close off this podcast? <clears throat> it would be the only right thing to do on our fortieth birthday um, mm. to celebrate us. Make it. We are now um, quad gen quad. If, if an octogenarian. Does that make us quadrogenarian? Quadrogenarian. Quadrogenarian. Anyway, Quadro. touch a whiskey to uh, wash down my uh, Belgian tipples. And I am going to have a little bit 
of one that I've uh, I've got on my shelf. Got a few on the shelf, as I'm sure you do. Uh, but it is the Hakushu single malt Japanese whiskey from the Hakushu Distillery, which is from the House of Suntory Whiskey, uh, aged 12 years. Uh, the distillery surrounded by forest at the foot of the southern Japan Alps. Uh, it is a very fine uh, Japanese single malt. Uh, 43%. <laughs> a little uh-huh. step up, as you would expect with whiskey. Uh, it comes in a uh, 70 CL bottle. I'm not going to drink the whole thing because I would be paralytic. Uh, but I'm going to have a teeny little bit to celebrate episode number 40. And how about yourself? Yes, uh, I'm interested, Sam. By the way, uh, that Hakushu do they does that have a cork or is that a screw top? That is a screw top. Yeah, so I find it quite interesting that Japanese distillers they're always using that. Uh, they they were all well, not always, but they they very often have screw tops, even on some of their very fine whiskies, like uh, the one that you're about to enjoy. Uh, whereas you know here in Scotland, yeah, corks are very very common, uh, even mm. from you know even among some of the some of the cheaper whiskies. Um, the what the whiskey I'm about to have, I've got a I was given a very nice little whiskey decanter that I keep on my uh, on my desk. It's uh, got a it was given by my brother. He gave me this uh, this this decanter that's very it's, it's a, like a globe, so it's got like the maps on it, and there's a little there's a little ship inside, like a sort of a ship in a bottle idea, and uh, yeah, the, the whiskey I keep in this one on my desk is my favorite whiskey. Uh, and it's not too expensive, all things considered. Uh, but it is, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it's not dirt cheap, but it's, uh, it, is, it is affordable. It is uh, Abuna by Aberlour, uh, which is my, uh, yes, yeah, my favorite. I do like the Aberlour distillery. Uh, Abuna is, um, you know, very, very sherried, uh, very highly sherried. And it's also got a pretty high ABV. So, uh, Sam, you're a bit of a lightweight with that 43% there. This one's uh, <laughs> this one's pushing 60, uh, but it doesn't taste it at all. It does not taste like 60%. So it is a, a great winner. If you do have an opportunity to have some uh, for everyone listening, or to or to or indeed to buy some, especially if you can buy some on the cheap, uh, I would highly recommend it because it is a very fine whiskey. But Sam, cheers to uh, cheers to episode 40. Cheers to episode 40, and uh, cheers to everybody at home listening in uh, on this fine Friday evening quite right quite right yeah that is uh that's very fine indeed i um mm. yeah, i wonder i wonder if we if we were to rate whiskies what would be would we use the same would we use the same scale or would we try and do something different because again it would be an opportunity to maybe simplify our rating system as some people it does confuse some of our some of our listeners um i wonder what it would be something oh. like um I was going to okay. say, I wonder if we could be a lot more, um, a lot more binary with it, and and a simple boom or bust rating. Ah, hmm. I guess if you're in the, you could say for our existing system, we've kind of already got that. Where if it's in the B's, then it's boom, and if it's in the A's, it's bust. Probably just condense it from like twelve levels down to two, though. <laughs> No, mate, it's too boring. <laughs> Don't worry, mate. The infographic, the promised infographic, it is going to come. It, sh- it shall be delivered. We shall see the infographic and be able to refer people to it. Um, but yeah, how's that? How's that Hakushu? Because I've never had it before. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, so I, I quite like it. It's um, when you drink it, you don't, 
you don't feel, and, and I don't know, I'm, you know, I, I like to drink whiskey, but I don't know all the correct terminologies, but you know, when you drink whiskey and you get that sort of warm feeling, this, when you drink uh, Hakusha, you know, sometimes with some maybe not so great whiskeys, you tend to get that sort of burn on, on the tongue. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with this, it's, it's sort of towards the lower parts of the back of the, the mouth and the throat. So it, it, it's, not a, it's not a burn or anything like that. It's just a nice warm glow that you get in the in sort of back of your, back of your mouth. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, it's very smooth very easy to drink that's probably got something to do with it being 43 percent um oh well not not necessarily either way i've Mm. i I, I do uh i do rate this one highly it's not the first time i've had it admittedly and i quite like japanese whiskeys uh in general uh i've had a few hibiki as well uh to go with the hakushu um yeah i i highly rated i I guess I, i I find it a bit harder to talk about the tastes that I get from it. But um, if anyone gets a chance to get some Hakushu 12 year old single malt, I bloody do. Cause I think mm. you thoroughly enjoy it. And, and it's nice to have whiskeys from all over the world too. Yeah. Yeah. It is uh, Japanese. The Japanese really do know how to make their whiskey. You know, referring to what we were talking about earlier, actually, there's a bit like Japanese whiskey. The one of the reasons why it's so heavily priced is actually due to that recency bias phenomenon where um, you know, after the brutal end to the 1980s economic boom in Japan, uh, you know, the whiskey distillers, you know, after the crash, when they were about at, when they're effectively having an, a really deep economic recession, the whiskey distillers in Japan in the, in the 90s really didn't think there was going to be a massive market for um, or a lot of demand for Japanese whiskey in the future. And that's the reason they, because they cut back on production back then, they uh, is one of the reasons why it's so hard to get or or, or, or it's w- where it's effectively either expensive really expensive or it's really hard to get or both for yeah. a lot of the major japanese whiskies you know uh, and they're so heavily desired because you know ultimately whiskey takes an awfully long time to make and that uh, you know way back then they were like well it's been we've just had an we're living in a really rough time right now demand is really low so we think it's just going to keep being that way and of course didn't didn't turn out that way at all. Uh, so here we are today, and you know Japanese whiskies will uh, will cost you a pretty penny. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's funny. It, it's, it's almost like with traffic jams. You know how they start where you know just one car stopping at the wrong time yeah. causes all the other cars to alternately <laughs> stop and start, and that just creates this tra- the cra- a traffic jam where the car at the front is you know now moving you know as fast as he likes. But everyone else is still, you know, uh, getting getting stuck behind it. Yeah, Sam, it's, any, it's, uh, I was say it's it's that it's interesting you talk about that. It's it's I call it this uh, the caterpillar effect, where it's like this: you, you're right, the the one car slows, and then they all slow, and then it's like this elongated slowdown as everything can kind condenses and, in in many cases, comes to a complete stop. And yeah. then after a very long jam, you then find all of a sudden. It's like an, and I see this all the time on the on the British bloody motorways. Is, is is that all of a sudden you just everything clears, and then all of a sudden you're back up to full speed, and uh, you know maybe there's 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 something in that in in the markets as well. I think at the right time, and yeah. like I say, it comes back to the old recency bias. I have no doubt as well. Yeah, the 
Yeah, and ultimately it will go the other way at some point. You know, I yeah. I do yeah. believe that you know the great demand for whiskeys that we've seen, and it's only been turbocharged during lockdown. You know, yeah. we were talking about NFTs the other day, but yeah. collectibles of all varieties, Pokemon mm. cards, um, cigars, whiskeys. They you know they've all been flying during lockdown, and you know I saw a, I saw a bottle of Macallan that went you know one of these really old ones that went for what eight hundred thousand dollars a couple of weeks back know. uh you know it's got to be you know will have broken a lot of records but you know this you know that that will feed into the market uh that 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 cash uh and ultimately you know that's going to cause you know i i have friends who are talking about you know starting distilleries and um and even colleagues as well who say oh i know this person who wants to start a distillery and because but i mean i look for a lot you know, a lot of that is a lot of that to some degree is people who, uh, you know, they, they see it, they have a very romantic <laughs> image of going to rural Scotland, living a lot of seclusion <laughs> and, and simple processes, uh, and then getting away from their smartphone and the internet. It's the, and, uh, it's the new escape to the chateau where everyone thinks they're going to be a winemaker. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, but with a bit of Ted Kaczynski in there as well, I think some people really want to sort of retreat from the modern world like that or revolt against the modern world, I suppose. But, you know, um, you know, this will feed it. This will lead to more supply in the future. So, uh, but on that, like the caterpillar, it'll take a, take a while to feed into them. Uh, but Sam, have you got any, any closing remarks do you think for episode 40 before we, uh, we finish this up and put it online? Yeah. Do you know what? Um, just, well, on, on, on speaking about cash flowing um, off of the back of some of these things. So you know how um, the digital artist Beeple sold that Indeed. 5,000 days for $69 million or whatever. Yep. Um, so he, he, so he'd been working on that long before NFTs were even a thing. Right. So, you know, uh, I just want to add that in because he, he, he cashed, he cashed it all in. He, 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 I think he was paid in Ethereum and sold yep. it all yep. sold all of it yeah he immediately like, he was like i wasn't in, yeah immediately he's like i wasn't in it for the crypto uh he goes i was doing this shit long before this was ever a thing i'll be doing it long after i just made 69 million dollars biatches uh, i'm out <laughs> and so like good on him right and that you know that money he's got that money now i think he took a private jet and flew somewhere to have a big ass party yeah. that's that's how some of these things play out so i think people can get a little wrapped up in sometimes in the um the ideals behind some of these things but at the same time as well uh when you've got a shit ton of money staring at your face that gives you a chance to do a lot of things in the world that you would otherwise not be able to do make sure you take the time to do it yeah i mean don't hate the player hate the game uh yeah. it makes sense that someone like uh someone like people when you if you got 69 million dollars you imagine you now think of that as your money would you really want 100% of that invested in an incredibly volatile asset like Ethereum, right? Yeah, I don't know if I would have sold all of it, to be fair. I would have maybe right. kept at least maybe half. I mean, maybe he like, regrets it considering the price action in Ethereum that we've seen I know, since right? then. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that'd be a lot more than 69 million if he just kept it in for a few more weeks. Yeah, he could have kept half and still and then still have it worth sixty nine million and have taken taken out thirty odd million. So, but anyway, you know. But yeah, no, I definitely I agree. And but don't hate the player, hate the game. So if you've got a, I mean, this is just you know in in eras of great speculation. Uh, you know, if you wanna you wanna get in there and just make a buck, by all means, do it. Just uh, yeah. you know, be careful, uh, be honest, and uh, and you know, make sure you don't get wrecked ultimately. Take, yeah, take some wins along the way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, there you have it, folks. That is episode 40 of Booze, Booms and Busts. Uh, I very much look forward to episode 50. It's going it's to be, we'll do something special for that, I think. Uh, if you have been enjoying these, uh, you should probably actually uh, know that uh, our new beer release, which is Blockhead, will be yes. available on Tuesday. Oh! Just a few days away. What? This thing is going to Exactly. It's going to be going live uh, and it is a limited release. There are not going to be many of these bottles going around. So uh, if you do want to get some, go to the Cheddar Ales website. If you just Google Cheddar Ales, you will get there very quickly. Uh, and on Tuesday, if you go to their beer selection, there will be Blockhead. And you can't miss it because it's Bitcoin orange uh, and it is a very striking label. I'm really pleased with how that turned out. But yeah, that will be available on Cheddar Ales on Tuesday. If you want to get some, get it while you can, because uh, not only is there going to be you know, it's low supply and there is high demand, but at the same time, uh, I'm probably going to buy uh, anything that's left. I'm going to pick off the survivors a couple of weeks after release. You know, I'm just going to go into the go into the battlefield after it's all finished and just uh, uh, and finish off the survivors. So if you do want some, you've got about two weeks, and that's if uh, all of everyone else doesn't doesn't buy some first. But uh, that is all for this week. We shall be back with episode 41 next week. Uh, and until then, hope you have a good one. Bye bye.